0: So we are in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, if you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 8. Because we're covering large chunks of Scripture at a time, I'm trying something a little different with the PowerPoint. I'll put some key verses up on the PowerPoint, but I'm not going to try to put all that Scripture up there. It makes for too many slides, and the font gets too small. If you'll bring your Bibles and follow along with me, or, or just listen, I'm going to make an effort to read um, longer stretches of narrative. Again, we really had a, um, a great response when we read through the book of, of Ruth. It was reminded that we are built by God to want to hear stories. The Bible is a book of stories. It's a book of history. It's true history. Real people in real history... These aren't made-up stories. Last week, we saw that contrast in parenting philosophies. And that 1 Samuel is a book where we're going to see a few contrasts. We contrasted Hannah and the way she raised Samuel with Eli, the way he raised his sons Phinehas and Hophni. If you kept reading the story... You've found out the tragic conclusion to Eli's life and the life of his sons. Um, his sons never did turn things around. They never repented. They went out to war. Remember, God had prophesied to Eli directly and through Samuel. We didn't read that last week, but the, you know the famous narrative of little Samuel at the temple. His mom had dropped him off to, to serve at the temple, and he heard the voice of God, Samuel, Samuel. And finally Eli tells him, look, when you hear it, it's probably God say, here I am, Lord, and he does. And God prophesies to Samuel what's going to happen to Eli for his um, refusal to correct and rebuke his sons who were committing great atrocities in God's holy temple. So Phineas and Hophni go out to war, they die, uh, Israel loses the battle, they come back and get the Ark and figure if we take the Ark of the Covenant out, you know like Indiana Jones style, uh, we'll defeat all of our enemies, but because their hearts were far from God, God did not give them the victory. In fact, Phineas and Hophni die in battle, a messenger runs back to tell Eli that his sons have died and the ark has been captured by the Philistines and it's just too much for Eli to take. He, he faints, falls over, and breaks his neck. Just a tragic end to his life. This week we are going to see a contrast in kings. God as king versus man as king. So, well, this ought to be interesting. Interesting. I believe this is one of the most pivotal texts in the Old Testament, this this section. I'm glad we had a pretty full house first and second service today. It's one of those narratives where you might pass over it quickly um, because there's another exciting story about the life of Saul and then David comes and we, we, we pass over this part, but from God's perspective... And I'm trying to think in the way God would think, and God would require us as His people to think His thoughts after Him. What would be most important to God? Here, His people that He has called to Himself, saved out of Egypt, made Himself a father of these people, brought them through the wilderness, into the land, helped clear the land out. This God who's been faithful, given Him uh, the law of Moses, has forgiven his people over and over and over. This is the passage where the people officially declare, we no longer want God as our king. We want a human king like the other nations. We want to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. Keep up with the Ammonites. Keep up with the Jebusites. Keep up with the Philistines. It's a very sad, and that's an understatement, day in Israel's history. We're, we're over 400 years into Israel's history as a nation. And I think we can all agree, because we've been reading the history of God's people, that it, it wasn't that they woke up one morning and decided, you know what, I don't want... Yahweh is king. This has been coming for some time. In fact, I would even argue that a long time ago, in their hearts, they decided God is not our king. They just made it public, and we can look at that as a national level or at a, a church level. When you see a a church go apostate, it didn't happen overnight. At some point, they just said, "Who are we kidding? Close the doors." Sell the property. It happens to families. It happens to individuals. Really, people don't just wake up one day and decide to walk away from the Lord. It's something they've been pondering and letting that seed germinate and grow. And they didn't seek help and they didn't go to God's Word and they didn't cry out to the Lord. And... They drift one day and everyone's saying, what happened? I thought, no, it's been going on for some time. And so this morning's passage is a warning to all of us. It's a warning to guard your heart. And we're going to look at the reasons that people would want to reject God as king and settle for some kind of earthly human king. We're also going to draw some parallels with with our own nation because we could say that our nation really was birthed over 400 years ago when the pilgrims came over and fled earthly kings and wanted a land where God was king. So I know we celebrate our country's birth in 1776, but really things were going on well before that. So we might say we're we're at a similar place, similar crossroads in our nation's history as Israel was here. And I think you'll hear a a lot of interesting parallels between the two nations. I want to be clear at the outset, though, that America is not Israel. We have not replaced Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. God has made an everlasting covenant with Israel, Israel is still around today. God has an everlasting covenant with Israel. You don't have to watch the news for very long or read the paper for very long that something about Israel is going to pop up. It ought to tell us that they're very much in the picture because God is still their God. Certainly they've rejected Him as their king and when their Messiah, Jesus Christ, came and they rejected him. Yes, they have said publicly, we don't want Christ as our king. But God has not given up on them. Let's read First Samuel chapter 8 together. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of a second Abijah, they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Remember, we said last week, even though we were contrasting two parenting styles, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantee. So even though Samuel was a godly man and is a godly man and will remain this godly figure, His sons didn't walk in his ways. Now, nothing more is said about his sons. We don't know if this was permanent. Maybe they were too young and immature to have that kind of responsibility. We're not told. But I do want to point out to us that never give up hope on, on your children. Continue to pray for them. God gets the last word. They may not be turning out the way you wanted, which could be a good thing. But the point here is that Samuel's sons were not going to make good judges. And so the people, it says the elders of Israel, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. That's, that's a, if you're an underliner, that's a, a key verse. Appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. What was Israel supposed to be? A nation that was not like all the nations. A nation that other nations could model themselves after. A nation where people would say, who is the leader of this great nation? And that would give people of Israel, the people of Israel, an opportunity to tell them about the true God. But they wanted to be like the other nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king, To judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Perhaps some indication here that Samuel was hurt by the fact that the people said, We don't want you anymore, we want a king. In the same way that when you share your faith with others and they reject the gospel, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting God. Now, if you present the gospel with arrogance and you're pious and you're mean-spirited and there's no love, then perhaps they're rejecting you. But if you present the gospel with all humility, sharing your testimony of God's faithfulness in your life, and that you were a wretched sinner and you were lost, but now you're found, and this doesn't resonate with people, and they laugh you or mock you or just say, oh, that's good for you, but I don't need it. I don't need a crutch. They're not rejecting you. And I know the gospel is so personal to you, and Christ is so personal, like Paul. You're like, to live as Christ. Christ in me. It's not. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. So when we present the gospel to people and they reject Christ, it does feel like they're rejecting us. You can't separate me from, from Christ. Yet it shouldn't stop us from witnessing to people, sharing our faith. So be faithful to tell people about the Lord. And remember, if they reject the gospel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting your God. Which maybe is scarier when you think of it. Rejecting me has no eternal consequences. So sometimes I think we're afraid to share the gospel because we know what the consequences are when people reject the gospel. But how will they ever accept the gospel if they never hear the gospel? Right? You can't be afraid that they'll reject the gospel and just say, well, if if we never tell them, they can never reject it. If we never tell them, they can never accept it either. Aren't you glad people were faithful to share the gospel with you? Likewise, in our Christian walk, sometimes we need to go to a brother or sister in Christ who's, Living in sin, and we need to lovingly confront them, and we're afraid to do it. Why? Because they may get angry with us. They're not rejecting you. Unless, again, you say it with pride or you're mean spirited, overly judgmental. But we are called as Christians to go to one another. I need people to come to me at times, and it's hard to hear. Remember, we keep saying that it's almost easier to hear that I'm in sin than hear someone tell me I'm living foolishly. Because of our pride, we'd rather be told we're a sinner than we're a fool. And yet, if we love people and we see they're headed for the proverbial cliff, we need to warn them. And they may get mad at you. Things may get ugly. It may end cordial conversation for a while. And then those family get-togethers could become oh so awkward, right? I hear the chuckles, you've lived this. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God as king in their life. So the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Because Samuel was appointed to be the mouthpiece of God, the prophet of God, by rejecting Samuel's advice, they were really rejecting God's wisdom and God's commands. So yes, they rejected Samuel in a sense, but only because Samuel was speaking for God. If you go to someone and you tell them, you know, I think I'm really cool and don't you like the way I dress, and they say, not so much. Yeah, they're rejecting you or your sense of style. But it's different when you go to them and say, God's, God's word is, is clear here, I want to show you this. And they say, get out of my face. Yes, they've rejected you in a sense, but only because you've chosen to obediently and lovingly speak biblical truth into their life. But as Matthew 18 so beautifully says, if they listen to you, you have won your brother. That's a wonderful thing. God says, Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. There's folly involved with choosing a human king. Wow, when you have the God of the universe as your king, why would you want a human king? Samuel recognizes this, and God says, no, providentially, I'm going to let them have their human king. But I want you to explain to them the way a human king will operate under my lordship. And I also want you to warn them what will happen. They never had a human king as a nation. All they knew were the nations that were oppressing them had human kings. And so we tend to assume in our ignorance that the grass that is greener on the other side of the fence, that everything is greener, right? Oh, I bet it's great to have a human king. Look how powerful they are as a nation. And so Samuel says, spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his ploughing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants, and He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. Cronyism, right? He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You made your bed, now you sleep in it. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So they're adamant. They want this this human king. They've been forewarned. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. By the way, our sovereign God knows exactly what he's doing here. He's not upset or panicking that he's been rejected as king. He knew this was going to happen all along. In fact, we would even say he ordained it to happen. Yet that doesn't um, take any responsibility and any sin away from Israel. They had their chance, and this is the path they are choosing. And like I said at the beginning of the sermon, this didn't happen overnight. This is a culmination of years and years and years of drifting from God's lordship. So why would Israel want a human king? Why would anyone want a human king, especially when you have God as king? Why would you and I as God's people ever be tempted to trade God as king for man as king? What do we think this will accomplish? Some would say, well... Man is a a tangible, visible king, right? And it's hard to follow a king that you cannot see. It takes faith. But we know that's not the real excuse because when Jesus Christ comes in the flesh, they reject God as king in the flesh. Man rejects God as king in the flesh, So there must be something else going on here. Again, if you're an underliner, if you get to verse 20, 1 Samuel 8, verse 20, they give the answer here. We want this king over us so that we will be like all the nations. You can underline that. That our king may judge us, underline judge us, and go out before us and fight our battles. You can underline fight our battles. Right? So, it all starts with fear of man instead of fear of the Lord. We want to be like other nations. We envy the other nations. We want to be like them. They look more prosperous. They look more powerful. They have this 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 king with his riches and his entourage and national pride. What do we have? We have... Uh, a tent, a tabernacle with a box in it. And I, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I don't feel that way about that. I think the tabernacle was glorious and the Ark of the Covenant was glorious and the mercy seat and the sacrifices and all that it represented about God and His faithfulness and His mercy and His compassion and His power. But this wasn't enough for the people. Whatever was going on in their daily lives, they were discontent. Discontentment, the root of all kinds of evil. I know the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but why do people want money so they can buy stuff? Because they're discontent. We want a a king to judge us, so that's internally. We've got problems internally as a society and if there was somebody in authority with enough power, he could fix everything. Now, if everyone would allow God to reign in their heart and obey his commands, we wouldn't need a judge. We would have God as our judge. He would sit on the throne of our heart. He would be our king. We could have a society that didn't require an authoritarian form of government. Why would people want a judge? Aren't you afraid this judge is going to judge you? Well, of course not. I'm not the problem. Everyone else is the problem. And we need a judge that will make people do the right thing. Or aren't you afraid the judge will take freedom and away from you, God warns them, look what he's going to do. He's going to take all your stuff and he's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to take the best of everything. So they want, they want a judge to judge other people. They just don't want a judge to judge themselves, but they don't think they need to be judged. This is the human condition. I'm a good person. Everybody else is the problem whether it's at the national level, the city level, the church level, your family, your marriage, your kids, everybody thinks they're not the problem. Now, that shouldn't keep you from making pastoral appointments. I do want to talk to you, but when couples come in, it's often, we got to go in so pastor can see my point of view and make them change. It's always the agenda when people come in. When people humble themselves and recognize that they're contributing to the problem, they usually end up working their problems out on their own. So as Christians, as your pastor, as you discipling one another, understand that about human nature. Understand that about yourself. Yes, you You've put your faith in Christ. He's given you a new nature. You have a new heart that is humble and bent towards obeying God, but you're still left with your old sin nature, and they're in constant battle until we're glorified in heaven. This is the clear doctrine of of sanctification in the Bible. Read Romans 7. Paul, "I, I want to do the right thing, but I end up doing the wrong thing, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. You need to understand that about yourself. Be suspicious of your motives. Be suspicious of your ideas. Be suspicious of your plans and your philosophies. Don't be that guy or that gal who thinks everyone else is an idiot or everyone else is wrong or everyone else is to blame. And it does no good for us to just yell out Christian epithets. Well, we're all sinners. Oh, yeah? Tell me exactly how you're a sinner. That's usually when the conversation stops. Ah, well, uh, I'm sure I'm not perfect. Let me know how. And when we're able to do that, then real change begins to happen. Now God is king again in our heart. What else do they want? They want this king to go out and fight our battles. So we want you to... To fix everything internally, fix everything externally. Why? Because deep down, all we really want is what Francis Schaeffer called personal peace and affluence. Leave me alone and let me work on having a little bit better standard of living this year than last year. You know, that's like the, has become the American dream somehow which is a ridiculous proposition because you can't keep getting better standard of living every year. So something has to give somewhere. Why can't we just be happy with what we have now and, and give God glory and thanksgiving for this? So judge us, fix our internal strife, fight our battles, stop foreign invaders from interfering with our life. Now you can't blame them when when these external invaders are coming in and and they're they're destroying your crops and running off with with your family and taking hostages and you see the parallels with our own country. We didn't like 9/11. It was terrible. It was horrible. We need to stop it from happening again and for our a brief moment in time, our nation rallied together. And people went back to church even, remember? The churches were packed. We said, well, maybe this is the event that will trigger reformation and revival. And then everyone kind of slowly went back to their materialism and their quiet life. And we got tired of fighting wars over there in a country that seemed un- unwinnable Has the enemy gone away? We have a, a false sense of, of peace here. We all tend to be our own worst enemy. Israel was its own worst enemy. God, when He made them a nation, He pronounced to them the blessings that would happen for obedience to God and the curses that would come upon them for disobedience. And we've seen the cycle of disobedience in Israel's history. They've made themselves weak internally. By turning their backs on God, they've created a society where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. An indulgent society. A society that worships false gods. Because false gods can't really judge you. And they can't lord over you. They can't be your king. They're not real. They're, They're... Statues, animated by your own desires and your own wishes and your own philosophies. And God says he will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Eventually, it's going to catch up with a nation or a family or an individual. I've been loving um, this, this tour of the Bible because I kind of tuned out in my history classes, history was boring to me in school. I took AP US history. I passed the AP test so I wouldn't have to take history in college. Memorize the facts, memorize the dates, take the test. History was presented to me in a way that was a completely disjointed set of unrelated facts. And yet we see from the Bible that it all flows together and all has purpose. Nothing happens. Without a reason. And so now I'm excited by history. I love biblical history. I love to read world history and see where God is taking history. And every time I sit down and start reading about Israel's history, I look at our own nation or I look at Europe, which was formerly Christian, and you're like, wow, look at the parallels In particular, I was reading recently about during the age of the Enlightenment in Europe, you know, for the Reformation starting in Germany and, and spreading out th- through Europe, it's amazing where they are today. So what, Reformation 1500s. So we're roughly, you know, four to 500 years later, like Israel. What happened in the 1800s, the Enlightenment swept through. It really really got rooted and grounded in the seminaries in Germany of all places. Enlightenment ideas took over, the church went liberal. In the mid-1800s, Germany was actually called... so you guys don't know history either, man, we were nobody taught us Prussia. It was called Prussia. And the, um, the Industrial Revolution was coming and they saw it coming, but they realized we're an agrarian society filled with independent farmers. It's not going to work well for the Industrial Revolution. How do you get independent thinking people to want to come and work in a coal mine for 12 hours? And so they put together the first compulsory K-12 education system. Now... Hold on. I know we have teachers in the room. They weren't plotting evil. They saw this as a good thing. In their own literature, they said, we do not need a society anymore where every man is his own lord of his land and farm his own land and take care of his own needs. We need a class of people who do this kind of work, a class of people who are supervisors and managers and a class. We don't need everybody to know how everything works. In fact, when people know how everything works, they tend not to want to do the basic level jobs. And so the the K-12 education system in Prussia was designed to separate all the disciplines of learning into separate compartments so you can't actually see how they all connect, right? You learn math, the bell rings. You go to English, the bell rings. You go to history, the bell rings. And you never really see how they connect. Universities used to be a place where Una One, knowledge, was combined into an overarching philosophy. And God undergirded all of knowledge. But people who learn to think that way don't work well in a mechanized economy. And so through lots of testing and lots of separating, you learned over your childhood lifespan that, oh, I belong here. This is my spot in society. And that's okay because if I do my job well, I have a sense of satisfaction. I did my job well and the whole country will run and the country will take care of my needs personal peace, and affluence. And what an amazing machine Prussia created, except they also created some very unhappy people. (laughs) And by the end of the uh, 20th century, the German Revolution hit. All that power was controlled by the state, and the Nazi Party took over. Be careful who you're giving all the power to. In the meantime, America sent people over to Prussia and said, wow, this is great. We've got to get on board with this. And so Horace Mann and the, and the fathers of, of K-12 education in America started the same system here. Again, they weren't plotting to, to ruin everything. They said, this is a good thing. It's a good thing. We're going to move from an agrarian society to an industrial society. You fast forward to today, and for a country who just a little over, or about a hundred years ago, was looking at Germany or Prussia and saying, we need to copy this model. Remember, what was at the foundation of that whole model was enlightenment thinking. We don't need God to tell us what to do. Science and reason will determine what what to do. We're now watching as Germany as a country is about to get completely overwhelmed with a foreign invader. And yet it's going to happen peacefully. They're, they're just letting immigrants in by the millions. Why? There's no children in Germany to run the economic powerhouse that they've become. I mean, there's no doubt that Germany's an economic powerhouse. They pretty much run the European Union. They make great cars, right? German, Germany has become synonymous with, with efficiency. And yet, they have no children. God said, be fruitful and multiply. It's pretty basic. Get married, have children, Teach them to love God. Jennifer and I met a German family at Disneyland this summer. They had one son. He was a high schooler. Nice kid. Fairly self-indulgent. I want this, I want this, I want this. The mom was fascinated by how many kids. We, had. we only have four, come on. It's not like, it's like, wow, how do you have all these kids? And how do you afford all these kids? And how do you educate all these kids? And she was just peppering Jennifer with all these questions in, what, what ride were we on? Thunder Mountain Railroad, yeah. So, and the kid hated Germany. He was German and he didn't love his country. I said, you like soccer? You guys are world champs. I hate soccer. I love American football. Who's your favorite team? He loved all things American. And I was like, wow, well, all this stuff I've read about Europe, here they are. They could only have one kid because they said kids are expensive and they take time and they're frankly inconvenient. So one's enough. And so so is the story with all the other European countries. Once your birth rate gets below one point three, you can't you can't maintain your country's population. You know, which which country has the lowest birth rate is Italy. And they actually have this pejorative name for these Italian boys who won't leave the home. And I don't remember what it is, but it's no longer like an offense to be called that. It's just like, yeah, that's us. And these Italian single aren't getting married, they don't want to have kids. And this is in like the heart of of Catholic country. You'd think they'd be having large Catholic families there. So now they're turning around and saying, well, I've got to take care of my parents in their old age so I don't have time to get married and raise my own children. So they never leaved and cleaved as the Bible commands us to do. A man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And our country will allow our kids to stay on our insurance until age 25. They one-upped us in Europe. You can just stay on your parents' insurance forever because it's national insurance. There's no reason to go out and get a job. So we could read historically what went on in Israel's history, but you could bet things like this were going on in its 400-year history. Again, you don't just wake up one night and decide to jettison and abandon God's program. It happens little by little, family after family, decade after decade, century after century, and you wake up one morning and you go, why are we pretending anymore? God's not our king, but we're a mess So let's give the power and authority to a human king and he'll fix everything. Whether that human king is a monarch or a president or some kind of committee or political system, the point is I'm willing to give up all my personal freedoms so somebody else will give me a nice quiet life. Are the German people going to stop the wave of immigration? They've already said they are not going to do it. And what's left of the Evangelical Church in Germany announced this week, we are not attempting to evangelize the Muslims coming in. All paths lead to God. Let them have their own religion and they will peacefully coexist with us. I don't think they actually believe believe it as they're saying it. But they know there's nothing they can do about it. If you have no children, there's no Germans, right? In 40 years. This generation dies off, there's no one to replace you. It's looking like if you want to go visit Europe and see it as Europe, you better go now. Because it won't be the Europe we all remember in a few decades. Listen to what God told Israel before they went into land in Deuteronomy 28, and tell me if you don't hear some amazing parallels. In Deuteronomy 28, God tells Israel the blessings for their obedience. Remember, they go... <clears throat> Remember we talked about how he said, when you go into the land, I want half the people to stand on Mount Ebal and half on Gerizim. Ebal was, was bald and no greenery. That's the mountain of cursing. Gerizim was this beautiful mountain. Kind of like Tehachapi, our southern mountains are nice and green and our northern mountains are barren. And so here are some of the, the consequences of disobedience. I'm reading from Deuteronomy twenty eight fifteen But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country, nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. That pretty much is all encompassing. But then he gets, God gets more specific. Look at verse 25. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. And in Israel's history, what ends up happening? Assyria comes in and then Babylon eventually. Listen to this, it gets even more specific. Verse 30, you shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. You shall build a house, but you will not live in it. You shall plant the vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. I mean, what's going to happen in Germany here? Again, I'm not saying Germany is Israel, but look at the principles. They've built this amazing society, and these people are just going to come in, and they're offering them free everything as they come in free housing, free food, free education. They're going to live in houses they didn't build. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you will Serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the peoples where the Lord drives you. This actually happened in Israel's history. But I believe the principles apply today to any nation who was formerly called God as king and replaced him with humanism, the God of humanism, man as king listen to this the lord will bring a nation against you from afar from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young they don't they don't play fair Now, Israel isn't perfect, America is not perfect, but certainly we would agree that the way we fight wars is a lot differently than other countries. There's a code of conduct, and when people don't follow that code of conduct, we'll, we'll try our own people in military courts. We try to protect women and children, not use them as, as shields. We put our military bases far away from hospitals and schools these people will store their military weapons right in schools and hospitals and apartment buildings. It's, it's, it's a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old and show favor to the young. And it shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land and on it goes you can you can continue to read but it gets really graphic and violent i don't want anyone losing their breakfast here so re- read it at home but not after you've eaten deuteronomy 28 the problem with with human kings is they're not righteous they have a sin nature what's the saying Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We choose our kings based on outward appearance instead of looking at the heart. Monarchs are notorious for narcissism. They heap up for themselves armies and wives and money and power to inflate their egos and to stay in power. Our founding fathers knew this and purposely created a system that wouldn't allow any one person or any one governing body to become too powerful. And at times it's frustrating because it seems like government moves too slowly, but it was done on purpose. Term limits, done on purpose. God knew this would happen. Again, He's not surprised. In fact, in Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen, He says and predicts, "...when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your own countrymen." Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. It's exactly what Solomon ends up doing after the Davidic kingship. Lots of wives. Like, I think it's 600 wives and 300 concubines. So God judges Israel's apostasy by giving them the kind of king they want. Beloved, know this. Sometimes God's judgment comes in the form of you and I getting exactly the thing that we wanted. And then we choke on it. You know, when your kids are little, sometimes you go ahead, eat all that candy. remember once my dad tried the old my, my dad was a smoker growing up go ahead have a have a drag off of this I had turned green and threw up Fortunately later I turned to smoking in college I'm not a smoker now just for the record but sometimes that backfires but go ahead God will give you the thing that you think will make you cool, or the thing that will make you happy, or the thing that will make you content. And then you get buyer's remorse. Why did I buy this thing? Why did I spend all this money on this thing? Why did I... So, who does God give Israel as king? You know it's Saul, but you've got to hear this passage from 1 Samuel 9.1. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekarach, the son of Aphiah, the son of, ben, of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. Saul's not the mighty man of valor. They're talking about his dad. Here's all we know about Saul. Kish had a son whose name was Saul, the choice and handsome man. A choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. And from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. That's all we know about Saul. Nothing about his character. Nothing about his accomplishments. Is he a servant? Is he humble? Has he accomplished anything in life? Anything that would have have us believe he's a good king. And when God picks him as king and presents him to the people, the people are ecstatic. He's tall and he's handsome. And before you mock them as Americans, since the age of TV, we have not elected the shorter candidate. Ever. There may be one exception there, but the taller candidate wins. where we've become a superficial people. Like eh, as long as they're good looking they could be our president. Heaven forbid we should have someone not handsome but is smart and person of integrity and person who's a servant, person who cares about the people. Some of you are excited because Hillary is short. But <laughs> Careful what you wish for. Samuel anoints Saul as king. So God tells Samuel, I'll bring the person I pick as king along. Saul ends up in Samuel's neighborhood because he's looking for his dad's lost donkeys. You should read the story for yourself. After he's anointed, Saul's able to prophesy, which is an interesting uh, turn of events, the prophetic office separate from the kingly office. And later, Saul would get in trouble for trying to take some of Samuel's duties away from him. When Samuel proclaims to the people that Saul has been chosen, there's the drum roll and no Saul. It turns out he's hiding in the luggage. And the way the Hebrew is worded, it draws a direct comparison to the donkeys who went missing. God has a sense of humor. Remember those donkeys that wandered off because they're stubborn and Saul went looking for them? Guess who your king is? Some donkey who wandered off. Here's your king. He's tall, he's handsome. But if you know anything about the story of Saul's life, it's tragic. Tragic. And we'll, we'll find out about the story in coming Sundays. But I do want you to see how all of this points to Christ. The anointing of Saul paves the way for the true king to come. In Israel's history, they were, they were governed by patriarchs, and then the judges, and then the prophet, priestly office, and now the kingly office. But when Jesus comes... He will be all of those things in one office. Perfect patriarch, the perfect judge, the perfect prophet, per, perfect priest, perfect king. And a man. And how did the world do with that package? They wanted an earthly king. They didn't want God as king. God sent the perfect earthly king because he was human and divine, and they nailed him to a cross. Man has been rejecting God as king since Genesis chapter 3 and the garden. I repeat, you and I must be suspicious of our own hearts, our own motives. We can be just as fickle at times. One minute, yay, God's my king. The next minute, I want want a different king. Do we come right out and say it? No, it's a slippery slope. God, you can be king, but I'll take this little portion of the kingdom of my heart. And the, and the portion gets larger and larger and larger until it becomes obvious, God isn't your king at all. You're your own king. It's fascinating when Saul becomes king, the Ammonites come to attack part of Israel. And they say, we'll let you surrender as long as you poke out all the eyes of your men. That's humiliating. That's how barbaric. People aren't like that today. And so Saul gathers an army, his first act as king, and he chops up an ox in 12 pieces, sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And anyone who doesn't come and fight will this is what's going to happen to you. And they fight and they win. And prophetically, the name of the Ammonite king is Nahash, which means serpent. Our, our God, King Jesus Christ, did come and he, he will judge when He returns. And He will defeat our enemies, just not the enemies we think. Because the greatest enemy is Satan and our own sin, Right? Yes, there are, are real enemies out there, but the, the worst enemy is Satan and our own sin. The enemy without and the enemy within. And our God-King... Say, I want a king who will judge over us and will fight our battles for us. That's Jesus Christ. He will judge over us. But aren't we glad that even though we're guilty, He will find us not guilty because of our faith in His sacrifice. And He will fight our battles against our enemies, the true enemy. Even though we're a people, and Israel is a people prone to turning their back on God, because of God's promises He's made to them, He will not forsake them. Yes, there will be consequences. Yes, there will be trials. But listen to what He says at the end of 1 Samuel 12. As as he's coronating Saul. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. So they seem somewhat remorseful about what they've done, but not remorseful enough to change their mind. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. Samuel's saying, look, you've done this horrible thing, but God will not abandon you. You've abandoned God, He will not abandon you. He's saying, you can always turn back. You can always turn back. Yes, you've done this horrible thing, but don't don't take it all the way down to the nth degree. Don't walk away from the Lord completely. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Samuel will continue to be a faithful prophet and speak for the Lord and help them on the paths to righteousness, even if the people have a pattern of not listening. Here's a model for us. Thank you, God will not abandon us or forsake us. And so those people in your life that you've been witnessing to, don't give up. Yes, they've said I don't want God as king in my life. But far be it from us that we should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for these friends, these family members. Don't don't give up on them. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done. As the people of God, our church, our families, And even us as individuals, again, we need to acknowledge our human tendency to reject God as king. It's lurking in all of us. We must evaluate our lives and look for areas where we are tempted to abandon faith and obedience and trade it in for immediate gratification or temporary happiness or some kind of false peace with the world. As our culture becomes less and less Christian, we're each going to be tempted to say, I am so tired of the world not liking me. It's getting lonely. I'll compromise a little here, a little here, a little here, and before you know it, God isn't your king anymore. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. This kind of dishonoring of God will eventually bring some kind of consequence. Instead, knowing that in Christ God will never f- forsake us and that He's preparing a place in heaven for us even now, we can remain steadfast in the faith. We can forego temporary pleasures on earth knowing we have eternal rewards waiting for us and we can endure what Paul calls momentary light affliction. Yeah, sometimes things get hard down here. Don't abandon the faith. Don't trade in God for an earthly king. Keep God on the throne in your heart and all the rest will take care of itself. Maybe not exactly the way you want it to look, but trust God the way it turns out will be for the best according to his perfect will and plan. Never, ever a good idea to say, maybe this God thing isn't working so well. Let's try something else. There is nothing else. Let's pray. God, strengthen us. Pick us up like wings on eagles as we sing. Life is hard down here, but this is a fallen planet and it is falling more and more every day. We know this isn't heaven. Forgive us when we want heaven on earth and we end up settling for the cheap substitutes this world has to offer. Lord, forgive us for yearning after personal peace and affluence instead of seeking peace with you through your son and influence the, the influence of the gospel for this world. That should be our mission, our personal mission statement. And so, Lord, like you told Israel, may we always return back to you as our king, receive your forgiveness, repent. And get back on the path of trust and obedience until you bring us home or you return. We look forward to that day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.